Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write and I had heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. We're going to pray and ask God's blessing on another marvelous chapter. Lord God, we do rejoice in your word. And we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds to understand and our hearts to believe. For Christ's sake, amen. I want you to imagine a little bit of a scenario. Obviously, this is pretend and not uh, likely to happen, but that's okay. We'll imagine it uh, nonetheless. So, right, we have presidential election, I guess, this fall. We'll say uh, presidents nominated, whoever it is, doesn't matter. Pick your party. I don't care. Pick the party you don't like. I don't care. That happens next year. And so maybe we'll say next year, midsummer, things in the Middle East begin to escalate, even to the point where some crazy general or whatever decides to send everybody. Like not just send a couple of our soldiers, not send 10,000 or 100,000 to send everybody. We're going to fix it once for all. We're going to solve the problem in the Middle East, recognizing there hasn't been peace there since we started reading it in Genesis. We're going to fix it now. So Chad goes and his entire group, Jeremiah goes, his entire group, Sam's dad, if he's still in, everybody that we know goes. All our soldiers land in the Middle East. 
And you can imagine a situation, maybe Chad or Jeremiah is talking with commanding officer and say, well, we've got our new orders. We know what we're going to do. Now that everybody's here, we know exactly what we're going to do. Now that all the soldiers are here, they're going to let us die. All of us. They're going to let the enemy continue to take shots at us. They're going to let the enemy continue to use all of the forces of evil that they have at their disposal. And they're going to let us die. And once we've all died, they're going to nuke the entire region. How do you think that phone call is going to go when Chad calls and tells Pamela? Imagine it's not going to be the most friendly of conversations toward Chad's commanding officers or Jeremiah with Marie or any other soldier with their spouse. You would have to question the quality of the orders to think, hey, our military commander has sent all of his soldiers into harm's way and his game plan is for them to suffer and die in order for victory to be accomplished. That's where we are in chapter 9. Thus far, Jesus, the great commander of the forces of heaven, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, who's commanding all of the armies of glory, has said, here's my game plan. My game plan has been to go to the cross and I will die. I'd be murdered, it'd be unjust, he'd be persecuted. Now he wouldn't stay dead, but he would die on the cross. And now as we begin this conversation about life moving forward from 95, 96 AD all the way to the end of time, the game plan that Jesus has rolled out for his soldiers is the same as his. Be persecuted every day of your life until everyone dies. And then nuke the entire place. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? I mean, you can understand why the disciples all throughout Jesus' ministry are like, hey, Jesus, when are you going to come kill the Romans? We're ready for it. Here's my sword. We're ready for you to start lopping off heads because we're tired of being persecuted people. Until you get to a book like Revelation, which lays it out more clearly. I mean, we've seen it uh, in um, chapter 6. With the seven seals, how those first four, which contain the devourer and contain war and contain famine and pestilence and contain actually very death itself, how those are not reserved just for the enemies of God. They're poured out all over creation and the saints have to go through it. They're not spared, which is why you have in the fifth seal there in verse 9, the saints crying out, How long, O Lord? How long? (laughs) His answer in the sixth seal is, Oh, by the way, I'm going to nuke the whole place. I'm going to destroy the very fabric of creation. And you got to see in chapter 6 this pattern laid out of of all of God's judgment being poured out now in creation. Go away, Nat. God's judgment being poured out now in creation, but his saints being preserved through it, though they suffer the same way. 
until the very end. And that's why we had chapter 7, which is this kind of uh, little aside, saying, how on earth are God's people preserved if his wrath is being poured out on creation? That seems like a crazy strategy. Seven is the aside that kind of answers it. Then you get into chapter eight. And remember, like links in a chain, it follows the same pattern as chapter six. The seven trumpets that are blown. And again, looking, if we talked about from the very beginning, you see these fulfilled in the natural disasters around us. Every time we see some sort of, of natural disaster, some sort of evil in the world around us, we're acknowledging this is part of what God is using as his wrath being poured out on mankind right now. And again, his people are not spared. When Katrina hit, it didn't just magically dodge all of the Christians' houses. It didn't avoid all of the churches. It just found all the pagans and knocked their stuff. It didn't do that. God's people endure the difficulty on top of that. They actually have the forces of evil arrayed against them. Chapter 9 laid that out where we see the devil being let loose to persecute God's people and bringing with him all of the forces of darkness that we read in Ephesians chapter 6, all of his evil minions. And they are creatures, verse 7 highlights for us, creatures of power and might. It's not like we're arrayed against some kind of minor, secondary little threat that's no issue. What's happening here is the real deal. And again, if you're kind of reading this and engaging the content of it, you would indeed have the same sort of response that Maria or Pamela would have the second they heard that our commanding officers had decided to let everyone die. You'd go, are those, are you for real? Surely that's not right. How on earth can that be the game plan? How on earth can that be the strategy for victory? How on earth can we think this is a good idea? It's that second stanza of faith of our fathers. God's plan is so easy to interact with when it's in the positive or when it's in the generality. When it's positive, it's easy to interact with God's plan. Test me in this. See if I don't throw open the very blessings of heaven for you, the storehouses of heaven being poured out on you. I like those promises. Blessed are you when they persecute you for my name's sake. I don't like that promise anymore. And just like we would question our military leaders when we begin to suffer, or more realistically, as faith of our fathers points out, when our children begin to suffer, we have this kind of natural go, well, really, is this actually the game plan? (laughs) 
It's the worst part about reading like Voice of the Martyrs and reading how the persecuted church is faring in other parts of the world is that the enemies of God do not follow the Geneva Convention. The enemy of, enemies of God do not spare non-combatants. They don't spare women and children. They don't fight fair. I've told this story before, but in Eritrea where they're taking Christian families out by the family and locking them in shipping containers in the sun, waiting to see if they'll recant. And if they won't, they have parents watch their children die just before they do. And again, if we actually really and truly engage in the difficulty, the pain, the hurt, and the heartache of the world around us, at some point, our natural human disposition is going to go, Jesus, do you really know what you're doing? Triune God, do you, do you really know what you're doing? I know your word tells me that you're good. But man alive, my experience is having a tough time confirming it right now. I'm stuck in in that tension between your word being true and reliable, which I know it is. But the thing I see before my very eyes doesn't seem to line up. How can this be your game plan? Chapter 10 is another aside. Just like chapter 7, it's a, a, a parenthesis in the argument that I think actually answers that question. How? God, how can this be your game plan? It starts with the arrival of a a figure we haven't seen yet in this form. A mighty angel described kind of uniquely in that way. Mighty in power, also mighty in size. This one is huge. Huge. Unlike anything we've seen yet, and to be completely honest, commentators actually differ on this one because there's no actual clear delineation in the text if this is actually the Lord Jesus Christ himself or one of the angels that ministers so closely to him that he is equated with his ministry. The reason why I say that is, it says in verse 1, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. In Revelation, we don't see that word angel applied to Jesus really anywhere except potentially here, though it is very common in the Old Testament. But yet, when it goes to explain who this angel is, its description is not that of an angel. Wrapped in a cloud. Hmm. Suddenly we're back in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. Having the glory cloud of God wrapped around this angel with a rainbow over his head. Again, that's the crown mentioned in Ezekiel describing the very presence of God. His face was like the sun. That's Ezekiel. Again, his legs like pillars of fire. If you actually turned over from just a couple Excuse me, chapters previous, Jesus is the one who is described as having the bronze feet. And what happens when you shine a bright light on bronze feet? They look like pillars of fire. If any of you drove uh, that way on um, the southern bypass when they were putting in that neighborhood with a gigantic bronze sign, if you caught that right at the right time of day, it was a massive accident because it was so bright, no one could see anything. 
It was just blinding. Here, this angel is described with all of the language of the Lord God, and he has a scroll. Again, Jesus is the one who's had this. His right foot is on the sea, his left foot's on the land. The impression that's given here is this angel is of the size that he's spanning the Mediterranean. <laughs> his sea's out in the, his one foot is out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. His other foot is up on Asia Minor. He's straddling the Mediterranean. The mighty, mighty one who has arrived, he cries out with a loud voice again. Remember, that's how we even see Jesus show up in chapter 1. And his voice is like the seven thunders, the fullness, the totality of just power and might and strength just rumbling forth. Now, it's interesting that when you have this aside dealing with this question, how, how does, does God actually know what he's doing? I don't think I like his plan right now. I'm tired of that friend that continues to be mean to me because I'm a Christian. I'm tired of that neighbor who always makes fun of me. I'm tired of that coworker who treats me like garbage because I won't lie and cheat and steal. Does God actually know what he's doing? And the first kind of salvo in the chapter is this portrait of either the glory of God in Christ Jesus personified or an angel that's so close to Jesus that his glory radiates in his creation. It's intriguing that when we go to answer that sort of question of does God know what he's actually doing, the first thing that we have in this text at least is a reminder that, oh yeah, by the way, he's a bit bigger than you are. Oh yeah, by the way, he's a bit larger than you are. The Greek here is highlighting actually in the back of it that John's paraphrasing Psalm 29 that we already read at the very beginning. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. God is mighty in his power. And honestly, the loophole that we like to jump through with that one is we go, well... I mean, God's powerful. Have you ever seen mankind? I mean, think about what mankind is capable of. I mean, how smart and clever men and women, boys and girls are. And I say, amen, glory, hallelujah, we are. Because we're made in his image. But if you ever think about it, just how short we come. I'll give you one of the, the ones that's common in some parts of the interwebs these days of people being afraid that we're going to design uh, artificial intelligence that's going to be so smart it's going to take over the world. And oh no, it's Terminator. The, the robots are going to come and take over. The, and you laugh at that because it's like science doesn't even know how the brain fully operates. We have no idea how it fully works. We don't understand. It's one of the new... Um, Fields of study that's really been advanced in the last decade, I think neuroplasticity, uh, which is the idea of the brain's ability to rewrite itself and to rewire itself even as it's alive. Where you see people have like traumatic brain injuries and lose part of their brain and the part of the brain that actually controls, we'll say, their ability to talk. And sometimes, by God's mercy, five years later, they just start talking. You're like... 
you don't have that part of your brain. It rewrote itself. We have no idea why. We have no idea how. We just know that God is marvelous and powerful. We don't even understand the full complexities of how the eye works. Pick any part of the body. We don't fully understand it. And yet, we so often want to hold ourselves forward as these mighty, powerful creatures that should be in control of our entire world. And suddenly you begin to realize actually what the real issue is, is it's an issue of control. I want to be in control. I want to be in control because honestly, if I'm really completely candid, it's because most of the time I think I have a better idea than God does. His path usually involves suffering and difficulty and sanctification in some way. And my path, my plan, usually involves pleasure on top of pleasure on top of pleasure. It's things that make me happy after things that make me happy after things that make me happy. And God's plan is things that make me holy after things that make me holy after things that make me holy. And funny enough, they're not the same. As a youth pastor, I I taught in the youth room for all the youth group, and it was absolutely perfect because in teaching like this, I could look out the window. Here I see a power station, which is not the most desirable. There, as I looked directly over the heads of the youth group, I had windows that pointed to the cemetery. And so you got to see this just beautiful juxtaposition of all of this life and energy and excitement in the room and where they're headed just out back. It put a good sense of perspective of how small humans actually are. Something that we forget. And I'm going to suggest it's probably the first thing we forget when we begin to complain. I mean, I I would imagine that if you actually really mind the depths of your hearts, when you find that you're actively complaining, usually the foundation of that complaint is because you think you are hot stuff. You think you're bigger and greater and grander than you're supposed to be. And here, this angel showing up, challenging that idea, showing people these tiny, puny little things made in God's image, still valuable, but much weaker than what we like to remember. All right, let's pretend, though, our situation, still we're going to complain. Jesus, I don't like your game plan to send all of your troops out into the world and then for them all to perish. Again, we know the rest of the story. They don't stay dead. It's a little different than our military today, thankfully. This great angel shows up. Verse 4, he thunders with his voice, the seven thunders, the complete totality of the plan of God. It rings through. Again, I, I don't know what this thunder sounds like. I imagine it's one that you don't forget. And John, being good and obedient to what he's been tasked with before, grabs his pen and his paper and tries to start writing down everything that he hears. Now, interestingly, he understands this. Whatever these thunders are, it's delivered in such a way that it's clear to him. This is, again, a contrast to Daniel chapter 12, where something very similar happens and Daniel doesn't comprehend it. Here, John absolutely understands what's going on. But the interesting thing is God's response is in verse 4, the seven thunders sounded, John's about to write, but he hears God from heaven saying, no, not this time. 
Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And you're like, well, that's odd. I mean, it really is actually the flow of the chapter is really odd. The mighty strong angel is introduced. He says some sort of new revelation that John's like, ooh, I like, you know, I need to write this down. This is important. And right as he starts to write, God says, no, you can't talk about that. And it's intriguing when you think about it. Again, kind of God, what he's articulating here is that uh, he operates on a need-to-know basis. And the vast majority of things are not things we need to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is certainly in mind in this place. The secret things belong to me. No, that's not the verse. The secret things belong to Michael. He reads weird books and finds them all. No, that's not it. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the revealed things belong to man and to his children. For what purpose? So that we might obey. I think it's interesting that God has, throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, kind of had two different categories of things that you need to know so that you can obey Him and glorify Him, and things that you don't need to know because it's not important for you to glorifying Him. And it's interesting that certainly what He includes in that list of things you don't need to know is exactly when time is going to end. Exactly when the last day is. It's intriguing, actually, even in Christ's humanity. That's not something He needs to know. He's the one coming back. Yet in his humanity, he doesn't know that. Need to know, he doesn't need to know. It's actually interesting, though, because you can in in many ways see the balance of power by who controls the information. You see this with your children all of the time. Parent tells a child to do something, child responds with what? Why? Sometimes parents have a particular sense of patience and will explain it to them, and that's okay. I'm not, not saying it's a bad thing. Sometimes parents will say what? Because I said so, now go obey. And that's actually an appropriate thing as well. J.C. Ryle in his uh, famous book on parenting said, you should uh, certainly not build the habit of always answering why for your children, because they will then read that onto their God. And they'll never be able to understand and appreciate that the vast majority of the ways that God answers us is, you don't need to know, just obey. I'm trustworthy. He is the perfect Father. He's the perfect God. He's perfectly reliable. We don't understand all of His reasoning. And honestly, some of it I don't think we ever will. And that's okay. Because we know He's good and reliable, and trustworthy, and true. And if we didn't actually know that, he's given us two proofs of it. Jesus has already died and been raised, and he's given us his spirit. So we literally have two proofs, one that's residing in us currently, to remind us that he does keep his promises. We don't have to know all of the why. And that is a truth that many of us can kind of get on board with until we suffer. It's easy to go, well, I don't need to know why until the miscarriage. Or until we lose the job. Or until that family member or friend or neighbor or whatever starts acting crazy as a loon and you can't get away from it and you want to strangle them, but you can't figure out how to make them stop. 
or until you get your feelings hurt, or until that deep, dark sorrow creeps in that you know, but no one else does. It's easy to say, I don't need to know why when we're not hurting, but the second that we hurt, that's usually one of the first questions we go to. And the vast majority of times in the Scriptures, it's not necessarily evil to ask that, as long as it's asked in the right attitude. But God's answer is always the same. The why is far less important than the who. Why your suffering is far less important than who is in charge of you in your suffering who is sovereign over you, who controls your days and nights, who is responsible for the number of hairs on your head or the lack thereof. The mighty God in power and glory. He is trustworthy and true. John doesn't get to write down his answer, whatever it is. He, it's not needed for us. We don't need to know it. So he doesn't get the opportunity to write it, to verbalize it, to record it. And instead, the story moves on. The angel then swears by him who lives forever and ever. Again, slightly an odd thing to do if it's Jesus, but he could swear by his father. It makes sense. Exegetical certainty. Grammar gives us options. You got two options here. I'm not certain which one. I'm laying both out for you. Swears by God. The trumpets being sounded and such. And the mystery of God, this mystery of the end of time is going to be fulfilled. The interesting part here, though, is that for the first time kind of in this book, we see the timeline specifically addressed. That as he swears to the Father, by him who lives forever and ever, created heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in it, in verse 6 he explains that there's no delay anymore. Whereas we might have been willing to acknowledge there's been a delay happening in the past, that delay is gone. There's no more pause before the end of time. It begins now. You go, well, what changed? I mean, why, why do we get the gear shift from delay, 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 delay into now, 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 now for the rest of the book? And kind of historically, I think what's happening here is it's acknowledging the resurrection. From the very beginning, since the fall, really, uh, Genesis 3 begins the address of when time ends. Time ends when the serpent is destroyed and the seed of the woman is proclaimed victorious. Just a few chapters later, men and women, boys and girls have wrecked planet Earth so badly with their evil, uh, not simply, not in the ecology, but in their morality, that God floods the entire Earth and kills them all. And he gives them a promise that I'm never going to kill the world by water ever again. By water. By water. Because I'm going to use something different next time. And it'll be far more thorough than water. Water just washed away the stuff. Actually made those lovely oil reserves that we get to use now. Instead, next time it'll be fire. And it'll consume the entirety of creation itself. 
It was hidden away in the Mosaic Covenant where we have the curses of the covenant being poured out on God's people in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. We see this idea being held out all of the time in the Old Testament that judgment's going to come and the world is going to end. We just don't know when. And now after the resurrection of Christ, when is the answer given? Well, now. The end of the world begins now. It may last for 100,000 years, but it's begun now. That's why as you hear this book and read it, you get to have this kind of unusual tension of God's judgment being reserved in the future, but it also happening currently to the seven churches, to the martyrs that are suffering hidden underneath the altar of God. Chapter 8, again, to the people of God crying out to their Father for the wrath that's being poured out on all of creation that they suffer through. The delay is over. And if you're anywhere in the, like, we'll say 35 to 45-year-old age bracket, or maybe even just a really diehard sports fan, boy, this truth hit really hard this last week for many of us. For many of us, Kobe Bryant represented maybe the first kind of major moral sports figure to just suddenly be snuffed out and to not be found behind some sort of dumpster with a heroin overdose or something of the sort, but to go out by every worldly indication as a good man doing good things. Just left Catholic Church to take his daughter to a practice with her peers and friends. A family man just... Just gone. Just vanished in the space of just a few moments. A helicopter crashing actually just on the other side of a very conservative biblical church. You see, this is the the reality for us again as we have this tension of we feel the difficulty and the pain and the heartache of life on a daily basis, some of us. But at the same time, we tend to think that it's so far off. That it'll never happen to me. But I mean, I know that stuff happens in concept, but it'll never happen to me. It's intriguing, again, how the ability of the human mind to hold those kind of two things, mutually exclusive things in our mind at the exact same time, that I understand suffering and difficulty around me all the time, but then at the same time, it'll never happen to me. If you remember a number of years ago, we had the, the kind of the nasty, really worldwide Ebola outbreak. I remember reading the news and finding out that one of the ladies suffering was my dear friend from high school's mother that I interacted with all the time. Lovely lady, dear saint. Her son's a lovely guy. I had classes with him for three years, every class. And you think, I said, it'll never happen to us. You're like, wait, my friend's has Ebola. This is crazy. She survived. J.C. Ryle's famous quote on this one, talking about the thief, the thief on the cross, said, uh, it's important to acknowledge that the thief, there was a thief on the cross who was saved uh, so that we might never lose hope. But there was only one so that we might never presume. And I think probably in America, presumption is the average way that we interact with the wrath of God. 
We presume that it will never happen. It's way off. It's something in theory. It's never going to really actually happen. This is, I think, probably a tough thing for the church because we don't really like to talk about that because it's a hard message. And I think that's actually the exact transition that takes place. Having explained that the wrath of God is being revealed in his mighty power, that we don't have all of the specifics of his wrath or of the end times, but that it is happening now and will someday come to a final end. The next transition that you could imagine John doing, like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't like it. I don't want to talk about it. And God runs him through the exact same thing he's done Ezekiel. When Ezekiel doesn't want to talk about it. Remember, Ezekiel was given a very terrible message. God's wrath is being revealed and none of you are going to change. Very similar to John's message. And here he's given the little scroll. It is a different scroll than the previous one. It's very similar, but it's not the same. And God commands him to eat it so that his word, God's word, would come into the prophet's mouth, into the prophet's stomach, into the prophet's body, so that he would proclaim God's truth. And here, interacting with the wrath of God, he acknowledges, it's God's word, it will be sweet in your mouth. But not every part of it is an easy part of it. Not every part of the Bible is a part that makes you feel good right away. And some parts get, I would actually say, more challenging the longer that we wrestle with them. The wrath of God being one of those truths. It does present then a challenge for us. And I would say probably a twofold challenge for us as we go about our daily life today is one is even acknowledging as the wrath of God is being revealed currently. That the end of time is here currently. We see God's judgment happening currently. That we even feel aspects of it where we get caught in kind of the splash damage, so to speak. That we do not grow weary in doing good. And we do not begin to doubt the goodness of the God who does it. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean he's not good. And again, parents understand this in some form or fashion because at some point, every child has wanted to play with the light sockets. Every child has wanted to fit their marvelous, pudgy little fingers inside the light sockets. It's just, I don't know why, but it's something we've all wanted to do. And every parent has been like, no, you can't. And at some point, most children throw a fit at some point because they can't shove their finger in the sockets. And the parents have to hold the line to say, no, you don't understand. You don't have all of the knowledge. It's hurting your feelings. It's making you so unhappy. But I'm loving you, and I'm caring for you, and I'm providing for you. And while I would love to say that I am so much better than that toddler throwing a fit, the reality comes to light. We're just more sophisticated, aren't we? Where God tells us no for things that are bad for us, and we pitch a fit instead of trusting him. Secondly, and I I probably suspect this will be the one that will be a bit less often, but uh, the consequences of which will be a bit more pronounced, 
is that we don't need to be shy about God's word. It's interesting in chapter 10, which is an aside, kind of explaining how God's goodness works in the midst of all of this judgment around where people are dying everywhere around in these chapters. And it's intriguing how John gets in the middle of that a challenge to be faithful to explaining God's word. Ezekiel got the exact same challenge when he did not want to. Forced to eat the scroll in chapter 3, he's then charged as the witness, which we talked about in Sunday school the other week, and that idea of the witness being that his life was intertwined with theirs in some fashion. It's imperative that we as a church today don't back off the Word of God. You think, oh, we'd never do that. Canada right now, I think it's illegal in most parts of Canada to say that homosexuality is a sin. Illegal. Y'all going to provide for my family when I go to jail for that? Seriously, you're going to continue to pay my salary when I'm in jail because I continue to preach the word. Are we willing to do that? Again, I suspect this is the reality that we're going to deal with less frequently, but when we do, it's going to be far more pronounced. Like that poor baker who's been sued, what, five times now in Colorado or whatever it is? His family's gone bankrupt. Only the keeping them alive are the gifts of the people of God to restart uh, their income. Again, I don't think it will hit as often, but when it does, it will be far more pronounced. And again, the, the challenge will be for us. Will we be comfortable saying, look, I don't understand all that God is doing, but I know that he's good, and therefore I know his word is good. So I will trust him, even now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's good, for you are good. Even when we don't feel like it, you are good, and your word is good. And we praise you for Christ's sake. Amen.